0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Labor Day weekend, so here's my 2017 conversation with Stanley Whitney. The St. Louis Art Museum will exhibit Whitney's work in The Shape of Abstraction, selections from the Ollie Collection, which opens next month. The show presents many of the 81 artworks by black abstractionists that Monique and Ronald Ollie recently gifted to the museum. Among the artists included in the show are Frank Wimberly, Sam Gilliam, Chikia Booker, Norman Lewis, Frank Bowling, Ed Clark, Jack Whitten and, of course, Whitney. The Shape of Abstraction will be on view from September 17th through March 8th, 2020. Stanley Whitney, after the break. With the fall exhibition season about to begin, I'm thrilled to announce two upcoming live audience Modern Art Notes podcast tapings. First up is a program with the artist Tiffany Chung at the Sheldon Museum of Art in Lincoln, Nebraska. Chung is one of three artists in the Sheldon's ongoing exhibition, Unquiet Harmony, The Subject of Displacement, a show which examines how artists have engaged with issues surrounding migration. We'll be taping at the museum on Wednesday, September 25th at 5.30 p.m. Then on Tuesday, October 15th, I'll be at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth to talk with Robin O'Neill about We the Masses, a survey of O'Neill's 20 years of art making that opens at the Modern that week. Our conversation will begin at 7 p.m. Hope to see you all there. And if anyone comes to both tapings, in Lincoln and Fort Worth, let me know and we'll be sure to come up with some kind of prize. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston continues its annual summer series of immersive exhibitions. Step inside The Visitors, the nine-screen video installation by renowned Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartansson. Each frame features a different musician, all of whom play together, but in separate rooms. A nod to Kjartansson's experimentation with time and repetition and use of durational performance to capture collective emotion. On view through September 22, 2019. Visit mfah.org thevisitors for more. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln presents Convergence on Paper, Printmaking and Photography, from Paranasi to Pop, with focus on moments in which the two practices intersect, in terms of aesthetics, function, and technique, Convergence on paper highlights the natural affinity printmaking and photography have for one another. The results of experimentation and innovation by artists including Via Selmans, Audrey Flack, Robert Rauschenberg, James Rosenquist, Lorna Simpson, and Edward Weston are on view at Sheldon through December 31st. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Experience theater under the stars at the Getty Villa this September. This year's outdoor production is The Heel*, a bold new version of Sophocles' timeless tale directed by Aaron Posner and co-produced by Maryland's Roundhouse Theater. Posner creates an irreverent, spiritual, musical exploration about the wounds we carry, the ones we cause, and the redeeming power of human connection. Performances begin September 5th and run through September 28th. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Stanley Whitney, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Let's start with a conversation you had with Larry Stokes Sims that was published in a recent studio museum catalog, one of the really good artist Q&As I've read in recent years. And you talk about how you met Philip Guston in 1968. I think you were at a summer program at Skidmore College, and he talked you into going to New York. How did that conversation come to happen, and why did he tell you that that's where he thought you had to be?
1: Well, I think that was uh, summer of six. I think it was sixty six. It was summer six. It was at Skidmore College, and Guston was the uh, visiting artist, and I was in—I think I was a junior in art school in Kansas City, Missouri, at uh, Kansas City Art Institute. And that came about, he, he really liked the work. I mean, he, you know, Gustin was interesting. He, I met him when he was just changing his work. We didn't see his work. We thought he was still making abstract work, but he was changing his work. There was me and another artist, Charlie Hewitt, who he really liked. He was kind of an old school kind of teacher where he said, you two are the artists, you know, and everyone else forget. <laughs> So he was in my studio a lot, and uh, I, I, always wanted to, I always wanted to be in New York. I mean, I was from Philadelphia. Yeah. And so I, I, New York was my uh, – I wanted to get there somehow, and I didn't know how I'd get there. And he was involved with the, the studio school, so he, he said, I can get you a scholarship. It the a studio school. But the studio school wasn't accredited, so it was a little bit problematic in terms of how I could really make that jump. But actually, the art institute allowed me to make the jump and go there because I was sort of like a six year kind of senior because I, I had transferred in. So they, they sort of said, yes, you can you sort of make that jump. I could do that. And then they wanted to, it's kind of complicated because they wanted, the, the studio school wanted to sort of like the idea of a, that they were unaccredited. They were going to get credit from a, I was going to get credit. As uh, a credit school for BFA, Kansas City, from them. So that was a the program they wanted to start. Although when I went there, I dropped out immediately <laughs> and didn't really do it because I, I didn't. I didn't. I thought it was kind of old-fashioned at the time. I mean, now I probably would have loved it a lot, but at the time, I kind of wanted to be in Mexican City or where was happening, and I, would, I didn't want to reminisce about the old days. So that was a but. But Gustin was very key in terms of getting me to New York. That was a really it was you know, the reason I'm kind of hesitating a little bit, that was a very complicated time. You know, there's a lot going on. The war was going on, you know, civil rights was going on, Black National was going on. It was a lot it was a complicated time. And I was sort of like, you know, you had to I I wasn't really I hadn't quite beat the draft yet, you know, the draft. We were always getting drafted. So it was complicated, but I, I sort of made it through. And so Gustin was a, be, a big uh, key in that. Even at, even when I went to New York and I dropped out of the studio school, which kind of they gave him a hard time because of that. But I worked in the Stram Bookstore, and his wife was a you know, poet-writer. And next door to the Strand Bookstore was an old art supply store. Uh, they used to buy their art supplies. They abstract expression, So he used to come in. I would see him. But Gus at the time was not someone who wanted to hear anyone else's problems. He said, I have my problems, you have your problems. And he didn't really want to deal with any you know my problems at all. So it, it was a complicated time, but he was very key. Yes, that was a very key time for me.
0: There's a great account of your Vietnam War uh, war era draft avoidance machinations in John Yao's Q&A with you in a Brooklyn Rail issue from 2008. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. It, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time you meet Gustin, you're going to New York. This period in the mid to late 60s, you're making mostly figurative drawings.
1: Well, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. That was interesting about it when I met him. I didn't know I I I had been sort of making these paintings, sort of like made up paintings of of, of self portraits and using images from other people's paintings. And I would do a painting when I was a student of like I could take a Corbet and mix it with a Roscoe. I mean, did all kinds of weird stuff. And so when I met Gustin, it's a summer program. I was just drawing. I wasn't really painting. It wasn't because he was just drawing, too. it wasn't painting. And, I, and it's funny because he was going one way, I was going the other. I was sort of going from this kind of sort of like kind of funky figuration, kind of like Corn, West Coast painting, kind of, you know, coming to New York in the summertime, looking at paintings and just mixing everything up. And he was going from... Abstract to figuration, although I didn't know at the time. So we kind of we were both kind of like I was kind of like trying to figure out how to get someplace. place. I think that's why we kind of hooked up. He was looking to get someplace place else, and I was looking to get someplace place else. So I was just drawing a lot. I just I just spent the summer just drawing, drawing, drawing. So I, th- I think he really I don't know how many paintings of mine he really saw. The truth I think I I started a few paintings and I stopped. I just spent the whole summer drawing. And I had never really drawn like outside and drawing, you know, landscapes or, you know, I think I take a you know, a branch into the studio and just do a whole bunch of drawings, kind of abstract, kind of figurative, kind of, I don't know, flower drawing or twig drawings or tree drawings, kind of thinking more of like, a, say, maybe, maybe it's sort of, uh, you know, early sort of, uh, I don't know, early kind of like Kelly or Mondrian kind of drawings, you know, so I think that was a big key, I think. And then, and then he would always tell me, Stanley, why don't you go downtown and draw downtown? Why don't you draw that car? And I would go, why would I do that? <laughs> I think it's what he wanted to do. <laughs> you know, once I always tell about Guston, we were walking down the street in uh, Saratoga Springs and we came across a red Cadillac convertible. And he and he went crazy over this red Cadillac convertible. Wow, what a red, what a cat. Why don't you draw this, Stanley? Look at this car. And I was like, because at the time, I must have been like, what, 20, and he must have been, maybe he, he got, I guess, younger than I am now, maybe in his 50s. And I thought, wow, this old guy's really excited about this red Cadillac. I thought he's more excited about it than I am. But he, uh, I think he he was going through that, too, and I was going through that. So I think it's how we how we became kind of hooked up, that kind of, that was a, a good time that way for me. So I learned a lot from him in terms of seeing and putting, and how to put things together and and his enthusiasm and love for art was just so great; it was unbelievable, really.
0: That's probably also about the time he's painting Klansmen in
1: red cars. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: So this is the late '60s, and you're making mostly representational work. Do you remember, or is it important to you when you flipped the switch and and really turned toward abstraction?
1: Well, I think I, to, I think before I went to before I went to that summer. I remember mean, Gus and I think I, I, I was going to a death strike. I knew then I could, you know, the paintings I was making up, I, they were too psychological and people kept thinking, what does this mean? and What does that mean? And, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really want to be a storyteller. I realized I wasn't a storyteller. There's lots of stories to tell. I wasn't a storyteller. And I saw some Martha Lewis works, which I really liked a lot. That was a, that was a big key. Because before that I was looking at you know, a lot of old, I mean, looking at Goya, Velazquez, and Mostly, you know, and then there was some sort of Diebenkorn, of course, and he was interesting because of the whole figurative and then abstract thing. So I, I was I didn't know where I was going to go. And I sort of had lost my way uh, in terms of my heroes. And so when I found the Morris Lewis and I saw those, those kind of clicked for me. But they were so absolute. Think about that work. It's so absolute. What could you do with it? You know, and but that kind of clicked for me that I wouldn't do that. I wanted to go towards abstraction because I felt there was a lot more room there for me to do a lot of, you know, I didn't know then that color was my subject matter. In fact, I didn't know my subject matter at all at that point. I think that when I got to Saratoga, I was already going to an abstraction, but didn't know really what that was yet. I was figuring it out. I was slowly piecing myself back together again, I think. So, uh, and I knew I wanted to go to New York. And I thought New York was really the hub. New York, I know I'd see a lot. You know, I, I used to go to New York in the summer because that's in Philadelphia. So I'd go to New York in the summertime, see friends, and go to the museums. And I knew New York. I saw a lot of work in New York, you know. And I thought, well, New York, if I get to New York, I can see a lot of work. I, I can really study, you know, in New York. And so that was a big key. I mean, Kansas City was great. Hideout, away from the war, away from, you know, all the sort of political things. It was a real, like, being in the country in a way, outside of the whole East Coast thing. I mean, it was it was crazy there, too, because you had you know, Wallace running for president. I mean, it was a really crazy time. But I could kind of hide out in Kansas City and just paint and not be bothered by anything. I mean, there were people there, but it was much easier than, say, what was happening in New York if you had, you know, you had Amir Baraka with the you know, Black Nationalist, you had Malcolm X, you know, what I mean, you have the stuff that you, I think if it's in New York, you're really in, in the in the heart of it, you know, so it was, it was pretty easy Kansas City.
0: That's important context for, for my next question, which is, you know, in almost every interview I've read you do, either the questioner or you have raised how difficult it was or was presumed to be, to be both a black painter and an, ab- and an abstract painter. Was that Something you had to work your way through or is that something that questioners just assume? you had no, to work
1: just, just Something you had to work your way through I mean I came out I mean I came out of a lower middle class you know poor family and the idea of being an artist Especially a painter. I didn't go to art school to be a painter. I thought I'd be you know I would go to art school and be an illustrator and make a lot of money. That was my idea and then I fell in love with painting and yeah, it was hard it was hard to defend, you know, at that point in time, you know, you had people I mean, you know, it was sort of like what are you doing for the race? What are you doing what are you doing? What you know, how how do you you know, if the Black Panthers came by, my student came to the city and said, Okay, so like, what are you doing? you know, and I if I said it's painting and they would think, Well, that's what's that? That's nothing, that's just some bourgeois thing, you know. Um,
0: so was abstraction a more bourgeois thing?
1: Well, I don't even think that was even the case of you know, abstraction. I think it was even like this painting was like, you know, what is, I mean, that's not a front line kind of activity. I mean, it didn't really, it's not something that people think, I don't even think today the they think is a, a political act. You know what I mean? I, I, I probably think it is, but they probably didn't. And at the time I couldn't defend that. I mean, I knew I wanted to paint. I knew I had to paint, so sort of, you know, I kind of felt like I was painting to the war. You know, I always think about it now as like when I think about Matisse painting those paintings in in Nice with the Nazis walking down the street. You know what I mean? I kind of feel like I kind of feel like I painted to the war. That's how I feel it was now. I painted to the war, so I painted through, you know. You know, see Walls running for president. I painted through the Black Panthers. I, I mean, no, no one wanted me to paint. <laughs> so
0: the so the battle was really painting, not abstract painting.
1: The battle is really painting. Then abstract painting is something it gets it gets, a, it gets a, it's a different battle. You know that that's a, that, that's a different battle. So then you so then when you get to when you get to sort of like if you if say if the Black bourgeoisie accepts painting, they want images that they say. Uh, represent what is black. And then I think then you get into who defines who you are or how who 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 who, who pleases you. So I think the whole thing the whole thing I dealt with is like a lot of people want to please me. You know, like, you know, this is what you should be, this is who you are. You know, there's lots of you know, people are whether it's painting or not painting, I mean the people have love laws, you know, they're all kinds of laws about what or who or should you be or what you could be. And uh, I mean, that's what we're going to do now, whether it's gender or or race is all these kind of laws about, you know, what things, who you are and who says what. So uh, painting is a real kind of radical act. And it's a painting is a real, you know, it's a real loving act. And that's kind of when you're when you're doing a real loving act or involved with love in the midst of a war, it gets kind of like people. It doesn't really belong, you know.
0: So if you're already thinking of painting as a political act back in that period, were there painters, artists, poets to whom you looked to give you permission to be a black abstract painter? You know, somebody who showed the way or guided the way?
1: I know I never really saw myself as a black abstract painter. That wasn't something that that really concerned me, whether, you know, I mean, I knew I, I mean, you know, you don't walk around thinking of myself as a black abstract painter i mean i don't always i guess i a painter so i wasn't really thinking that i mean if i think about that time you know I, I was lucky to grow up in a time where you know with king when i was a king what he got done allowed me to really go on and and, and be the painter uh i wasn't born in a time say, like Norman Lewis, who was really had to really deal with that. You know, I mean, I was kind of I was kind of free of that. I'm probably the first generation to kind of start to be free of that.
0: I was just going to say you're about 10 or 15 years behind the generation
1: that begins to be free of that, you know, who was allowed to go and just do what I want. You know, I mean, and there was that whole thing of sort of like, what are you doing? You know, like community, what's community? So there was a hint of all that, but not not my studio. I, I really decided that I was going to be more involved with you know, who the, being a human being and not that. I mean, I don't really you know, think of myself as black until maybe I can't get a cab or something. You know what I mean? I don't wake up and think, well, <laughs> I'm black. I, I, that's something people sort of lay on you. And I go to the studio, I mean... My painting, what I do, comes out of my culture and how I grew up and the music and how I move and my ancestors. And then also, you know, when I saw, like I said, when I first got involved with painting, I saw, uh, I always said, I saw Cezanne and thought about, you know, uh, Charlie Parker. So that's how how I got involved with Cezanne was really through Charlie Parker. You know, in terms of that, so those kind of things, in terms of piecing those things together, that's what I spent my early years doing, trying to figure out how much of, how much of the this part of the world, that part of the world, or how much of my growing up in a small black community, how much going to, you know, when I go up to Kansas City, and my best friend was, painter Al Taylor, he was sort of like, you know. Uh, This guy from Wichita, Kansas, and he came a whole different kind of background than I did. And, you know, being really, really American in terms of how you mix these things up, you know, because that's the thing about America. It's it's sort of like it's all these things all mixed up. So I think it probably, probably I think it might have more as an American painter.
0: The uh, Ruth Fine's recent Norman Lewis catalog has some great passages on on Lewis on, on, on experiences Lewis had late in his career, and listeners may enjoy taking a look at those and, and contrasting them and comparing them to, to to what we're talking about. Let's skip forward to your 1993 trip to Egypt, which you repeatedly identified as being important. It helped you realize that you could quote put forms, colors and marks together and still have a lot of air, air air in the painting. Help me out with that. I've read that in a couple interviews. What was it you saw in Egypt or or experienced in Egypt maybe that got air into the paintings.
1: Okay, let's, you know I have to you know that's interesting. It's really important. That that was the last piece of the puzzle, are we still. That was the last piece of the puzzle. It started out really because in, in the 80s, I was teaching out in Stanford and also uh, Berkeley just for a couple of semesters. But at the time, I traveled across country a lot, uh, drove across country, which is a wonderful drive. I wouldn't mind doing it again. And I was much more interested in sort of thinking about air, thinking more about landscape and, and a, like, you know, if I think about Clifford Still, thinking about poly. So I always thought that if I put the colors side by side, I want a lot of air in the work. I knew that. I want a lot of space in the work. And if I thought about space in the work, I thought really, so Like again, about those two. And when I, then I went to, I went to Rome uh, in the 90s. That was the first time I went to Rome. When I got to Rome, then I started thinking more about architecture. Because in Rome, you're a great architecture. You have great architecture and you're a great light. You know, I mean, in Rome, if you stand in the shadow, it's one, one temperature, you stand in the, in the sun, it's another temperature. And so you have the great light that you see in Caravaggio, that from dark to light, you know, that light. And then you have that great architecture. You go and look at the Pantheon. When I went to see the Colosseum uh, the first time, I was surprised how much it was, had a human scale, it was huge. But I had a real human scale. I felt from the first, from one brick to the size, the whole thing. I thought a great scale, and so I was always thinking about scale. So that was a big thing, architecture. And then you look at the, the the pillars at the Pantheon, you know, and they're like ten tons, you know, and that all that. So then I go to Egypt. So I go to Egypt, and then really talking about architecture and talking about weight. And so I'm in the Egypt. I'm looking at you know the pyramids. I'm looking at the tomb. I'm looking at all the uh, the frescoes on the wall. And then it hit me. I thought you know I could probably put all the colors side by side. And then I realized I realized then that the the air and the space could be in the color, not that the color was on the on the on the space. The space is in the color. So in painting you get all those kind of things like which are really sort of. Physically, it's very simple, but mentally uh, hard to get to. It's sort of like if you look at uh, Mondrian and you look at why it took so long for a black line to become a blue line or a red line, you know, and have this, not have the color be a square, but have the line be a color. So those kind of things. So that was a big thing. So when I did that, when I realized that, that I could put the color, you know, butt up against one another and not lose the air, because I kept thinking if I did that, i could uh I would lose all that kind of space I wanted, so that was a big thing so so then i had so that was less with the puzzle because before that i was i mean I still draw a lot, and so uh that kind of space and that kind of air I can get with my black and white drawings, and then the color I realized space is space is in the color. So that, that was a big thing, you know, that was a big thing. For me.
0: So a great way to give image to that idea might be a painting you made in 1991 called Radical Openness. And there are two things about this painting that strike me as really different from from where you ended up just a few years later. And, and, and I think I'll try and ask about both of them. The first one is instead of these all-consuming, and by all-consuming, I mean, you know, instead of the grids you use now where, 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 where there's no space between the elements, in, in Radical Openness, you have three rows of shapes. And on the top, you kind of have maybe some rectangles and some circles. And then on the next level down, the circle, they're, they're kind of more circular. And then at the bottom, they kind of become a little more rectangular. Did you have to work to eliminate those shape-like forms? Or was it more of a eureka
1: moment? Well, I was, other, I was, you know, I'm a process painter. So, I mean, what I mean by that is sort of the paintings kind of, I make the paintings tell me what to do. That painting, I know what you're talking about. I don't know really if how the painting happened that you're thinking about now. You know, that was, that, you know, at that time, you know, with all that kind of gesture, I, I was thinking, you know, I was doing that. But then I was, you know, I, I kind of, what happened with that really was, I can maybe say is, I kind of wanted to get rid of that kind of abstraction kind of gesture, that graffiti kind of gesture. I mean, people love the gesture. And so, but I kind of really wanted to really do something else besides that gesture. And I, but those paintings were, those paintings were real discovery. Those paintings were really hard fought for. Those those weren't easy paintings to make for me. They were really, I know what I was doing at that point. You know, they were the beginning of me just figuring it out. That was just the beginning of things coming together. That was a really, um, those were hard fought for a painting. So the, yeah, those, those are really, I look at those paintings now and think, wow, that those were really, uh, those were tough paintings for me to get to, but I, I got there. So I, I can't really say much about the, making the painting itself. You know, I, I think about the, the color, I think the black with the, the, yeah, those are really, and it's funny because I showed this painting at Karma and I had when I made this painting, I never showed those paintings. I never went out to the studio until I showed Makarma for the first time. So those were great to see. And those were um those were tough paintings for me to make, that's all I can say.
0: In addition to the shapes, which you would soon eliminate, the, the other thing you would soon eliminate is what we were talking about when you were describing your experience in Egypt, and that is that the shapes are separated from each other. They don't bump into each other, and they're separated from each other. By distinct lines or blocks, but but mostly lines of color, some of which is almost black. Was the hardest thing to eliminate from the painting that separating line or those separating blocks of color?
1: What I would usually do is I would lay a gray field and let and, you know because I grew I came in Europe with a lot of color field painters, the color field painters, and I found the work very weak uh, in terms of drawing and and. and uh, but I like the color, of course, and uh, so I I always haunted me and sort of have this color on a field or on a, you know on a on a space. So actually to paint that black around and and sort of fill that in and bring it up bring it up to the same same space or same level as, as those colored sort of you know blobs. That was a big that was a big thing because usually I didn't do that. Usually I laid the colors gray down and put color on top of that. And sort of had sort of so so you could sort of see through the color be one space and and the, and the field be another space, so to, uh, a further back space like the back space, almost like staging it like staging, and so you yeah, to lay that black in, have that black come up and sort of like be sit there with the red or the yellow, I think there's green in that painting uh was a big with a big thing I did. That was a big that was a big breakthrough too. Those paintings are big breakthroughs in terms of just I sort of let it all hang out in those paintings. And those were big big breakthroughs. And then as I go along, you know, actually being in Italy too, and then and then you know I started they kinda of calmed down a little bit because I, I started thinking more about Mirandi and those paintings. You know and I kinda I, you know seeing a lot of graffiti even in the even in the trains in Italy and you know, all over and New York and thinking about uh the cooning and, and gesture, I, I kind of didn't want that, you know. That was a big thing. When I gave that up, people were kind of like a little a lot of people who liked the work were a little you know, a little surprised and I gave all that gesture up. But um I did not I d I didn't I didn't want that kind of gesture. You know, slow was, and the work the work changes little by little by little. You know, my work doesn't change very fast. My work changes. You know, early on, I saw a show of uh, Mondrian at the Guggenheim, and I loved how it went step by step by step. So my work changes like that, you know, very slowly. I mean, if you saw my work from, say, the 70s till now, you would go, everything makes perfect sense. You know, you would, see, you would see every step, you know what I mean? Every painful step.
0: <laughs> my guest is Stanley Whitney. We'll be right back after a break. Peter Paul Rubens is recognized as one of the most celebrated painters of all time, but his international acclaim was far from an assured outcome. Witness his rise to the highest ranks of European painters in Early Rubens on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Focusing on what is arguably Rubens' most innovative period of production from 1608 until about 1620, the exhibition showcases almost 50 works, including large-scale paintings never before seen in the U.S., Don't miss your chance to see early rubens at the Legion of Honor before it closes on September 8th. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. And now back to my conversation with Stanley Whitney. You know, these paintings from the early 90s, your paintings from the early 90s, remind me a whole lot of Rothko's from 1949 where he's got things that are separated within the rectangle, within the canvas, and that he's working to bring them together in a whole, working to prevent them from being separate things on the canvas and and, and working to unify the thing. Was that period of Rothko, is that period of Rothko important to you?
1: Well, you know, everyone's early work's important. You know, I just saw that show, Abstract... At the Royal Academy in London.
0: David Ann Pam's show of New York. Yeah,
1: yeah, and Most that was a handy. great show. Yeah, seeing the early work, I mean, like seeing you see the early Clifford stills and these kind of weird figurative things, you know, early Clifford stills. You see, early, you know, the early work was great seeing Roscoe because, you you know, he could have gone a lot. You see how people could have gone a lot of ways. You know, he could have gone this way, he could have gone that way. And the choices he made in terms of what is he going to do, what he wasn't going to do, or my choice of like giving up, say, that all that gesture, you know what I mean? Or is it moving, just staying with the gesture? So you see these decisions that artists make. So yeah, that, those are things that are really, you know, Rothko, you know, like one reason I'm abstract painter is because of things like that, like Rothko, Clifford Still, uh, uh, de Kooning, all the truth. I want a little bit of everything in the work. And the system I have now allows me a little bit of everything in the work. You know, it's like, like not one color, you know, it's a lot of color. I mean with Rothko, I didn't want to. I, you know, Roscoe, I thought, well, you know, here we go from, you know, maybe two, two or three colors. I wanted four or five colors. You know, I, I wanted, I want I want, I, I sort of want the history of painting. I want the history of painting, the whole history of painting in one painting. That's mm-hmm. that's what I want. I want every color in the universe in one painting. So, yeah, the seeing the, the early work is key. I mean, early on, I studied really hard. That's why I came to New York so I could really look, go. You know, those early years in New York in the 60s, going to 57th Street looking at art, the modern, uh, the med. I remember seeing, you know, a lot of Marlboro, a lot of early, you know, some, some really great just black and white uh, Pollock paintings. You know what I mean? Or I think even some I saw on, on Linen, which I can't, I don't think I've seen in a long time. But, you know, just seeing all that stuff. That, that that Yeah, the early works is key. Yeah. To, to, you know, yeah. Rosco Roscoe was always key to me, but then I but then so but then at the same time as I say Roscoe I can say so is So is Pollock, you know, what I mean, so how do I mix those things up? That's that's a whole thing It's like I I didn't want to do one thing and not do the other thing, you know I, I sort of wanted everything
0: well, let's let's talk about color We haven't talked too much about color yet, which is really kind of kind of weird are are there any colors you intentionally? Avoid or don't use?
1: Not at all, you know, and uh, I don't really, the color, you know, the color is wide open. I don't start a painting knowing what the painting is going to be color-wise. I mean, that's a great thing about what I do is in a sense I have this sort of like, you know, people call it a grid. I didn't even think about the grid, but I sort of, you know, I, I lay these blocks of color down and I never know how they're going to, what, what color is going to appear. That's why it gets back to music and some call and response. I lay a color down and a color, a color calls another color. And so then people say, well, I use, you know, and I use a lot of red, but if someone said, well, it's red your favorite color, I'd go, no. Actually, my son asked me what my favorite color is recently. I told him rainbow. <laughs> uh, because I really, I, although I use certain colors, I, I, they're always shifting. I mean, even my blues are always, you know, even the same paint will be just a slight difference, a light. Because when I do a color, one thing I like to do with color myself is the I use the oil paint. Is I can get a lot of different variations in terms of color, uh, in terms of touch. So if I change my touch, I change the color. You know what I mean? And that's the great thing about Roscoe. You really get this. That's one thing about Roscoe the touches. I mean, I just saw that show of those Roscos that pace, those dark paintings. And, you know, I just love how much you feel the painting more than you almost then you feel the, see the painting. You know, you feel the space. And with oil, I, I love that I can get a real variation in terms of my hand or to my touch. Not sort of like, you know, that Frank Stella, what you see is what you get, or that industrial kind of idea of color. I like, I I, I didn't want to give up sort of like the idea of how you paint, you know, like Manet I or or Corbet. I didn't want to give that up.
0: I've, I've read you use that phrase before, and... When I read it or when I hear it now, the three artists I think most about are, are Matisse Bonnard and Diebenkorn, each of whose touch really changes color.
1: I mean, all those important. I mean, uh, you know, Debencorn is very important. You know, in Kansas City, you know, right in the middle of the country, people were, you know, I went to art school. We were either going to people, a lot of people went to the West Coast and then a lot of people went to the East Coast. And Debencorn's an interesting artist because he really stayed West Coast artist and, and how he. How he goes from, you know, because Diebenkorn is great looking at those, looking at his figurative work and looking at that work and being in, you know, I can think of figure drawing and thinking about what that meant or how I would, what the, I can do with that. And so Diebenkorn is really, for art student, I think Diebenkorn is great. And then he, he's someone you you like early, like in sophomore or freshman year, but then you also like later in life, which is, you know, pretty incredible how he moves from that work and, from that sort of figurative work to that later work, the abstract work. And then you see where Matisse is. In fact, I guess there's a show right now, right in Baltimore. Uh, yeah. Which I haven't seen. I, I'm sorry. I haven't seen it. I don't, know, I, hope, I don't know if I will see it, which is it.
0: It goes to San Francisco. You'll have another chance.
1: So yeah, the, all the, you know, all those people. important. You know, I mean, Matisse is, you know, huge for me, but Matisse But Teeth comes into my life sort of later. When I was a young artist, I thought, oh, I I couldn't figure out, really. It looked easy to me. You know what I mean? I I kind of wanted the struggle. I I sort of wanted, like, you know, a soutine, you know what I mean? Or I wanted that struggle. In in
0: 2013, Bomb Magazine ran a photograph, probably provided by you, of a wall in your studio. And one of the paintings, pictures, postcards of, of a painting tacked up on your studio wall is Matisse's 1908 Bathers with a Turtle, which was which was in St. Louis, which you probably saw in St. Louis when you were in Kansas City. Is that an example of a Matisse you struggled with or worked through, and is it still?
1: Well, that's a great painting because that's a real struggle. I mean, that's a painting that you can see he really struggled with. You know, I mean, it's such an awkward painting. It's such a crazy painting. I mean, he's just trying to, you know, he's really trying to figure it out, you know. Uh, you really sense that, you know, the politics of the time—I don't know what he painted—but before the, before, the after the First World War, before—and but those paintings, yeah, those paintings are great because you know you can see he's painting things out, he's painting things in. He's—I mean, the turtle's just like you know—it's just—it's just like just things that don't make sense. I'm sure people thought, what the hell is this guy doing? I mean, because if you think about that painting, and you think about the time, you think about how people were dressed and what people look like, and that painting. And what paintings were? I mean, that's really radical stuff. So yeah, that's, that. So I look, you know. In fact, I have the painting up here with the three figures, three pink figures, and then the blue, and the green, pink, and then the turtle. And I mean, I mean, they're not the one that's not sitting on something. I mean, they're not even maybe drawn what you say academically right, but it makes it's, it's, it makes perfect painting sense. You know, I mean, it just makes perfect painting sense. It's like makes perfect human sense. Like, so, yes, that's a very important painting.
0: I've been going to the St. Louis Art Museum since I was, I don't know, 10 years old or something. And I've never figured out that painting. I mean, it is the most wonderfully humbling experience. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I, that's, that's what you want from a painting. I mean, what you want from a painting, you want something that you really, you know, you want something you really live with. You know, I've got a big painting that people can live with, you know, that you really can't figure out, that, that you know, they feel good, they're... You can sort of mentally wander in. You can really have thoughts with, you know, you can really figure some things out living with them, you know, and that's, and so that, that's what great paintings do. Do you
0: ever borrow or lift a color from other painters?
1: Not consciously. I mean, uh, not consciously. I mean, I look, I, I tend to still go out, you know, look all the time, you know, like I see shows and like, I was great cause I saw this show. In Paris, of the work from Russia, then I went over to, to London to so abstract because I, I wanted to, see, you know, blue poles. I wanted the Pollock blue poles painting, which is in you know Australia. So, so I look all the time. So I'm look, I'm, I'm always, you know, if you're always stealing things, but I, I'm not sort of always conscious that when I when I paint a painting, I'm not conscious of of something like that. But you know, I look all the time, so you're always looking sort of like what things are or I, mean, sometimes I think about sometimes I think about, like, you know, like a Goya, I might think, oh, that red slash, you know, on that figure, the, uh, the material, that red, that beautiful red through the middle. I think, oh, you know, then I'll do something and think, oh, that's like the Goya, you know, that red slash, you know, belt, you know, of fabric through someone's you know garment. I think, oh, that's like the Goya red. So, you know, things like that a- after the fact, you know, but not, not while I'm painting or not before.
0: I mentioned Bernard a moment or two ago. One of my, favorite things in Bernard are his treatments of interiors and the way he gives the tile floors or the tile walls in his home, particularly in Le Canet, this remarkable chromatic excitement. There is a superficial relationship between the way you put color on a grid and stack it in rows and those Bernard interiors. And I wonder if they're important to you.
1: Bernard you know, not really. It's funny with that because, you know, Bernard early on is someone who I did look a lot at. And I know this, what you're talking about in terms of those paintings. And I, and I, and I Bernard, Bernard's so soft. You know, he's so loving. And yeah, there is, of course, there is something about that in terms of the light, in terms of the color. But he's not someone I necessarily like, now think that much about. I think probably more about, say, uh, Mirandi than Bernard. But yeah, I mean, but, and the, because the color, you know, I always had the color. I always had the color. I'll I tell, I tell you a story. When I was, I, tell, I mean, I, tell, I always tell I've told so many stories, the same stories, it's my same life, so it's my life. But I, when I was young, I went to, a, a, I was maybe 10 years old and I grew up in Bryn Mawr, a sort of wealthy neighborhood outside of Philadelphia, the main line. And, you know, I was part of a poor black community. Most people, you know, servants, working class people. And uh, there was a little art school I went to, and I went to, and, uh, I, and so we had a, a figure, paint a portrait, and I painted the portrait, and I used every color on, every color there. And the and everyone else was like, you know, sort of realistic black and white, kind of like chromatic, you know, uh, and I painted the painting with every color, and the teacher loved it, but everyone, and I looked at everyone's painting, but everyone's painting was like, you know, only like, you know, brown and pink and black and white. And I thought, oh God, you know. And I was just the only little black kid in the room. And I thought, oh man, I did a little wrong. And so my teacher loved it. I took it on to my parents. The parents said, "What's that?" You know what I mean? I, I, and I never went back. <laughs> never went back. So I always had the color. The color was always there. You know what I mean? But I, but but making color, something matter, making color, and, and taking my life into the music because I grew up, you know, in a household where music was on 24 hours a day. I mean, the radio, you slept with the radio on, you woke up with the radio on. Music was like playing 24 hours a day. So, uh, and taking all those things, making these paintings out of it, you know, was a lot of study to to do that. So Bernard, you know, he's important to me because he's a good painter. So all the good painters are important to me. Uh, But I don't necessarily think about that wall or or that. And, And he has a different... The way he touches the canvas, uh, he's so soft. I'm I'm kind of more brutal than that, I guess.
0: (laughs) One more thing before we transition to talking about three or four specific paintings. For years, I'm I'm not sure starting when, but you've made paintings that measure one foot by one foot. And you kept doing them, and my understanding is you tend to keep a few of them around the studio at any one time. Why that size and why do you keep doing them? What about that thing do you find helpful or useful?
1: That kind of, uh, you know, this kind of sort of happened by mistake one time. I went to art supply store and they had a little box and little canvases and I bought a few and, I, and they were very cheap, so I bought them and I did them. But those are interesting because those are almost like because they're the way I make them, they're so tiny. It's almost like jewelry, you know. It's like really – that gets – now that gets more like Bernard because it gets more like jewelry to me. I give almost like jewelry, like a small brush, you know what I mean? As opposed to a big brush. They kind of keep me in shape. And what I do is I work, work in a big painting, then I'll do a few of the little paintings like that because I, I paint – I have these little salad bowls I paint with because I paint and I paint in the bed. And then at the end, I feel like I'm really in shape. I'm really – I'm really, like, sort of, like, by the end of the day, a session, I'm in really good shape, I feel like, and I, I kind of make those paintings. And they just are really kind of, like, uh, somehow they're important mentally for me to do that, to just clarify a few little things. And they're really, by that point, I could care less. I'm really, like, I just do them almost subconsciously, and it just feels really good to me. And they're important to me to do. So, And if I don't do them, I kind of you know, in a way, it keeps me in shape. I mean, painting to me is with like staying in shape. Like if I don't paint for a while, it's hard to get the rhythm, it's hard to get, get it going again. So it's like staying out of shape, you know? It's like if you you know, you know, go to the gym and then you're in shape, and then if you get out of shape, it takes a long time to get back in shape again. So those little paintings gonna kind of keep me mentally sharp, keep me in shape.
0: You also make these small paintings that are just black and white, black paint on on white, and you've been doing those for years as well. I was wondering if you think, you know, if those come from a particular place, and the place that that jumps to mind, knowing your biography a bit, is is that you took classes from Al Held at Yale, who made those those black and white paintings for years. Do you think those stem from him, or do they come from something else?
1: I don't necessarily think they do. I mean, Held was interesting, but no, I, they, those come from those come from my drawings. and you know, when I draw. Uh, no, in fact, they're not paintings; they're gouaches on paper. When I draw, uh, I tend to draw in black and white because I, I kind of want to. You know, one thing I, I did early on was I realized drawing was the key. I realized drawing. You know, with Gustin, I see how drawing saved him. With Bryce Martin, I see how drawing saved him. With Roscoe, I see how drawing didn't save him. And so drawings is a big key for me. So those were something I did. I first did those in two thousand nine, and I did them. And I didn't. And I thought they were kind of interesting, but I didn't know. I thought well, maybe, I I couldn't tell something was there or something wasn't there. I wanted to do something that was just bare bones, because uh, I think of my black and white drawings as bare bones. But at the same time, early on when I first came to New York and the painting weren't happening, you know, I went out and bought a book on. Um, a big book on uh, Van Gogh's draw, Van Gogh's complete works, and I I always used to go to Guggenheim to see the C.P. of Van Gogh drawing, and I always thought of Van Gogh's drawings how colorful they were. I thought, oh, these are really colorful, but there's no color, and I thought it well, it's just like a painting, but no, but they're just as colorful as the painting, just a mark making and how rich they were. So my always my thing is, can I take a black and white and make it as rich as the paintings? So that's what those are about. And so I'm, I'm, I still make those. And I'm still curious about how they're, why are they interesting or why are they, what about them? But the thing about drawing black and white is I really work on the space where things are, you know, because the big thing is not about just the color, it's like where the color is in space. And that's the key about the drawing. The drawing is key in terms of getting in the color, putting the color in the right space. So the color has a real intellect to it, it's not just decorative it has a real intellect. So those things are really about space and uh, and about color. Black and white is color. And so that's something I I keep doing. I don't know yet if I could ever make a painting, you know, black and white is color. I mean, that's something I don't think I'm yet on making my, you know, late paintings, although I'm getting pretty old. <laughs> I, don't I don't know if I late paintings yet. Because I don't know you know, I haven't really tried to make a you know, if I think if i made a black and white, paint, a big paint, I I would miss. Something. You know, I'd miss. I, I don't know if I could do it. You know what I mean? If it would be enough for me to do something like that, so I, you know. Drawing is something you do to keep, you know, keep some kind of like trap doors open so you don't paint yourself in the corner. I don't want to paint myself in the corner. You know what I mean? I don't, I, I kind of want to have some trap doors and some, you know, back door trap doors. You know what I mean? Something like that.
0: Not, not not to guide us down too, too big a diversion, but it occurs to me that not all painters make late paintings. I mean, like Diebenkorn never really has a late period. It's just kind of a progression.
1: It's true. I mean, you, you know, you could maybe... It's true. Uh, maybe he doesn't. I mean, he, but he slowly. It's how he, how he, I might not either. I don't really know if I will. I mean, I think about because when I think about that, I, I think about uh, sort of Picasso's late paintings. You know yeah.
0: What I mean? and, oh, or Goyer. I mean, there's so many examples. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and and so I don't know if I will either. I don't know. Like, who knows? But
0: some painters dead. are just on a ramp, and yeah, and the yeah. ramp keeps yeah. on keeping on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My because my work does change very slowly, so it's not like something. You don't see too many radical, you know, all sort of radical shift. You know what I mean? Like I say, I'm much more, I I mean, I knew early on, I I was going to be like, you know, I knew that early on, that's the way I'm going to go. I thought, I mean, you see things early on, you go, that's the way I'm going to go. You you have a sense, that's the way I'm going to go. I'm going to go that
0: way. I've referenced a couple times in our chat, a a number of really great Q and A's you've done over the years. One of them was with John Yao in in the rail in 2008, the Brooklyn rail. And at the end of that conversation, you said that you want people to look at the title of your paintings, figure things out from the title. And that you hope to get, hope to receive the depth of critical or historical consideration that stems from that kind of study. So we're going to do a little of that. And I want to start, I want to go through a couple paintings. First one being the first-ish painting in the recent Studio Museum show. It's titled James Brown Sacrifice to Apollo. It's from 2008. It's a painting you made, I think, um, right around the time James Brown died. There, There is near the top of that at the top of that painting kind of in the middle not exactly in the middle a light blue panel a light blue square rectangular shape there is a temptation upon understanding the title and understanding when you made it to read a shape and a color like that as heaven is that a reading you either want people to find that you're willing to consider or that you may be actually intended
1: Oh, you know that's interesting. I never thought about that. No, it's nothing. You know, it's nothing I intended. But that's okay. I mean, the thing about the color—it's a color for most people brings up different stories and brings up different things, you know, depending on who you are. So that's fine with me. I didn't intend that, but that's fine. I, I know that wasn't thought about at all. But that's okay. That's good. I like that. That's fine. That puts a smile on my face. Yeah, I like that. It's good.
0: Some some artists don't don't always appreciate, you know, some artists have more closed ideas about what's there. And
1: well, I think, like. you know, the whole thing, to, are, they're wide open. I mean, it's funny about that painting, because at the time I had an assistant, and I always said, look, just make sure that people, don't, you know, title that painting, because I did it at the same time as Jane Brown, you know, passed away. Because I, I saw a painting someone did said, Jane Brown's dead. And I thought, Jane Brown never dies. And so I made that painting and, you know, and I really thought James Brown, like, you know, really is a god and, you know, very important. And so that's, it's, not a, it's a painting we're gonna, I'm going to show in Documenta, in, in Athens. in fact, that painting. They're going to borrow that. So it came an important painting, which I'm glad about. But I always worried that people would say I always say make sure that people change that title of James Brown at the Apollo. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would be my fear of that.
0: That'd be a music album. That would that would be more album than painting.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, title, the titles are the titles are always to show how complicated it is. You know, because people always try to pinhole you into being something, you know. People always try to pinhole me into being, you know, what is to be black? or what does it be this or what does it be that, you know, and, you know, as a human being, we're all very complicated, you know, as Americans, we're all, you know, everyone's, you know, black and white and Indian. I mean, it's amazing. in fact, it's amazing with Americans how much they don't realize how much Native Americans they are, you know, in terms of their, their, their ideas about freedom, their ideas about independence. It's not a European thing, you know, it's much more of a Native American thing. So all these things that I, I kind of want in the work. So, And I read a lot. I mean, I'm always reading, and I want the title to really just, if someone really wanted to, you know, to really go through. And the, the titles the titles themselves bring up a lot of things of who I am too. Uh, so it's great. I mean, I sort of like struggle over the title. I, I struggle over the painting, and I struggle over the titles. I mean, I kind of wish, I, you know, in fact, I'm sending some paintings out right now, and I kind of wish I could just say untitled but I, I don't want to send them out entitled. I, like, I, liked, I liked, like the story you just told me, I think, oh, that's great. You know, because I would never have thought that, but that's great.
0: Next painting, Dance the Orange from 2008. It's a line from one of Rainer Mario Rilke's Sonnets to Orpheus. The line goes, Dance the orange, the warmth of the landscape. It draws you forth so that your ripeness streams forth resplendent on the local breezes. A glow arising revealed. Is the painting a landscape? A warm landscape?
1: No, no, no. But if, if you know, uh, no, it's not. But you know, the painting, the, the painting, anything you want to be. If you want to be a landscape, that's fine. The paintings are wide open They're for your own interpretation. If you want to, you could be. I mean, it, it could be. You know, it could be one one day it could be a landscape, and one day it could just be orange. I mean, it can be a lot. It can, it can, it can transform. It can be anything.
0: The question that I read is Rilke's. I should make clear, not 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 mine. But was it the question that, <laughs> that perhaps prompted you to use use that use that line that no, title?
1: You no, know, use that. I I love the idea, you know, of dance, and I thought, you know, I love the idea of color. And I thought, oh, dance the orange, and the painting, you know, has a lot of orange. I thought, oh, that's that just that opens the whole thing up. Dance the orange. I mean, it's just it's just to me really just the uh, the beauty of it all. So that's that's that. I mean, I, I just I, I'm sitting here thinking about it right now. I, I I I love that title, dance the orange. I mean, because, you you know, so it really is like dance, The art, What is that? I mean, that doesn't that kind of how do you do that or what is that? Uh, so it's just it's all these things just to open people up to things. It's about opening things up. It's about really, you know, it's about wanting to be human. That's what we're trying to get at.
0: There is a move you have that is in both of these last two paintings we've talked about that's in most of your big paintings that happens over and over again. And that's, you know, we haven't really talked too much about. The grid in your paintings, which is fine, you've talked about it other places, but at the top of each painting, the very top, before the grid begins, there's almost always a long canvas spanning band of color, sometimes two colors. Why is that a helpful or useful move?
1: I like the way that feels. When I, you know when I started painting, I bring that line across the top. I, I mean it's funny, you know, it's a lot to do with the Egyptians wall paintings when I saw when I was in Egypt when I saw the wall paintings. In fact, the e- Egyptians are interesting because they work they work from the top from the bottom up. I, I work from the they were from the bottom up and I work from the top down. But I just you know, that kind of that kind of just kind of that kind of stretched like that. It just opens it up for me. I, I just you know, a lot of it to do with things that feel right to me. It's not like, you know but painting is painting sense. is like we were talking about that Matisse. is things just feel right. You know, it's like you know those three figures with that little turtle. I mean, it could be a, something else, but the turtle. It's funny because the turtle's like you know so slow too. It just feels right to me. And so if things feel right, it's like painting sense. It fe- feels right, and and uh, it just and I if, I, li- I like that. I like to stretch my arm out that way. It's just a, a long stretch. And so that, that kind of expands. Again, it gets back to the idea of landscape, the idea of expanse. You know, it gets back to, I think, Clifford Still and how things sort of, you know, expand. It gets back maybe how the universe expands. So I, it just feels right. There's no, There's no, I don't get into, I don't question it that much in terms of right or wrong, good or bad, or whatever. It just, you know, things, you know... You wake up at a certain time, it feels right.
0: Stephen Corn in his Ocean Park paintings always has a line of color at the top and and, and usually a line along one or both of the sides. And he never discussed this in any Q&As that I've ever found. But he seems to have had a rule for himself that he was never allowed to have a single color go all the way across the top or all the way up and down the painting without being broken up or interrupted or changed into a different color. Do you, do you have any rules for yourself about that color at the top of the painting?
1: You know, I don't, I don't like to think I have rules, but then I probably do a lot of things always the same, but I don't think of them as rules. I, I think that they can all, things can always shift. but the rules you know, if I have any rules, as long as you know, my, as long as I'm not painting, uh, as long as every painting is a strong individual, then I'm okay. That's kind of my rule. You know I mean, as long as there's strong individuals that it's not a red one, a green one a blue one, but they're strong individual, then I'm fine. that's kind of what that's kind of what I think about, and so because people say hey, you paint the same painting over and over I like, go, oh, I guess I am but but instead sort of I like, think about like Bud Powell playing the same tune over and over, it's never the same, you know you hit a you hit a note the same note different way, it sounds differently that's. The one thing I think about, just keep them strong individuals. That's what I want. I want them all be really. It's like the people in the room. They all Mm -hmm. look very similar, but they're all totally different. So that's that big thing that you know, one or two or three percent different makes a big difference in everything. So that that's that's I maybe I don't really like to have rules. I don't like to I don't like rules. I don't like laws. You know that's that's something, but you know I understand why there are those things. But as an artist, as a painter, you know I'm not really I'm the individual finding their own way, which is you know a big responsibility.
0: Two more paintings. Next to last one is from 2015. Its title is My Name Is Peaches, which is a line in Four Women, a 1966 Nina Simone song. Let's hear a little bit of it here. My skin is round and my manner is tough
1: because I'll kill the first mother i seen. see because my life has been much too rough
0: much too rough in this hot sun it's been too We'll also have the full song on on dot com a, a, uh, a link to a YouTube video of a live performance of, of Simone doing the song, which is really great. So this is a, a 1966 song. We we talked about 1966 earlier. Do you remember listening to this song in, in 66? In, sure. in Skidmore? Oh, yeah.
1: Sure. Sure. I remember all this stuff.
0: Other than the fact that, you know, any of us can <laughs> listen to any song anytime we want nowadays. Any idea why that song was was what was in your mind or of interest to you in 2015 yeah
1: oh that, because I you know I painted that painting and that uh, it had this really pink peaches color it's like really that painting was really soft and I thought about peaches well you know I'm, I always have, look in the black community you know there's always someone named peaches you know usually a beautiful woman peaches and she's usually you know a certain certain color brown but she's usually really gorgeous Sometimes she is, sometimes she's not. But my name, there was a woman named Peaches. It was very gorgeous. But she's tough as nails. So when I paint that painting that was really this really soft yellow, pink, and then I have a color almost like Peaches in it, I thought i gonna name it something Peaches. I thought it was, I was sort of a Nina Simone song. So I did that. And then also the a story, you know, when the Black Panthers, this is a good story, when the Black Panthers were in a shootout in Oakland, you know, and they and they had a big shootout, and they were surrounded. You know, FBI said everyone come out, and everyone said, who, I'm not going out there. And the woman who was in pe it was Peaches, and Peaches said, I'll go. So Peaches went out first. So that song, that title, I mean, I'm always trying to bring everything together in terms of whether it's the Panthers, my paintings, Cezanne, Velasquez, Goya, you know, all together. You know what I mean? So that's, so that's 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 a great thing about titles like that, see? So all the time we're having a conversation about a lot of different things. And uh, that painting is a really, um, you know, it was, it was a real beautiful painting. I mean, in fact, when I painted that painting, I thought it was too beautiful. <laughs> so that's, so that. So I'm always, when I paint a painting, I'm always looking, trying to figure out who it is, what it is. What's the name of that painting? I paint something and I go what what you know almost like I almost have to ask him, what's your name who, who are you? So it's like who you know it's like things appear and i try to I try to identify who are you and so that's how peaches came about.
0: There are three different rectangles in the painting that could be said to be a peach like color, two of which are identical, a third is a little bit more red, and as soon as i mean I remember this from 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 seeing the show a couple of years ago. As soon as you look at the title of the painting, the only thing in the painting you see are those three rectangles that are peachy. And they just vibrate and bounce and and, and, and suck you in the way kind of Bernard color does. I guess that's that softness you were talking about. Uh, the last painting I wanted to bring up is one that I think will be in Fort Worth. It's called Sunraw. It's a painting from last year. Last year now oh, is yeah. tw- you know, It's not going
1: to be in Fort Worth, but they use it. Sunraw 2016. Yeah, yeah.
0: First, does the title refer back to that 1993 Egypt trip, or is there a more recent? No, no.
1: I was thinking about the musician Sun Ra. You know, I I didn't know the painting. I always, you know, I always think about Sun Ra a lot as a musician, a human being, and what he did, who he said he was, where he came from, and you know how he wouldn't buy into the whole uh, race thing in America, the black and white, and and so Sun Ra and his music and his discipline and. And so he's someone very important to me. So, uh, and I called us and I had many other paintings, Sun Ra, but I called him Sun Ra uh, 2016. This the idea of keeping Sun Ra alive. You know, as, uh, a lot of things I want to keep alive. And so Sun Ra, yeah, I know someone, uh, actually the person who brought the painting too, thought it was out of Egypt. And that's fine too, because Sun Ra, that's, he, that's where he got it from. So that's, so all those things, yeah, all those things are important. So it wasn't so much about that, but you know, it's a great thing about the tiles, and a great thing about abstractions and like that. There's lots of possibilities of what it could be. And it's, and, it's, and it's all those things. Yeah, it's all those things.
0: One of the things I notice in this painting, and I've noticed it in, in a lot of other paintings, at least of the big paintings, is that when you allow one of the rectangles in the grids you build to be black, they are never the rectangles in the middle of... The painting. They're usually rectangles that touch the perimeter of the painting. Is there a, a a reason for that? Is that just instinctual? Is that something you've noticed?
1: Uh, you know, there's one painting I did that that was in the one of those big paintings. That I earlier on I just put the block right in the middle. Uh, it's funny, I just saw it. Jeannie Greenberg has it in her house. It's one of those big long paintings I showed at Karma. But yeah, I tend not to it's true, I'm looking at a drawing right now with the blocks along the edge. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you know how I use blocks to balance things out. You know, you have these habits uh, you do, and think, you know, you can make things work with that. But yeah, it's kind of like it's not something I plan on. I think of the, the, I think of the middle. The middle, I want really wide open, and I don't want people to, to go to go in the middle. You know, what I mean, to be sucked into the middle. So I kind of want the middle to to expand more. So I don't tend to put the black in the middle. But now you say that maybe I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Stanley Whitney, it has been uh, an absolute thrill and a a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for for chatting with me.
1: Oh, no, thanks, thanks. It was very enjoyable. Thanks for asking.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.